Anything you want me not to tell anyone? No. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> All right. You're listening to the Brand Builders Podcast with your hosts, Scott Dunstan and Brian Young. Welcome to another episode of the award-winning Brand Builders Podcast powered by the Dunstan Group. My name is Brian Young, and we are here with the president of the Dunstan Group, Scott Dunstan. And we're here with a special guest, Robbie Bach, uh, who used to have the title Chief Xbox Officer. And if you are wondering what it's like to have that title, we are about to find out. Uh, as a, a kid who grew up in the era where video games um, kind of grew up with me, uh, went from Super Nintendo, and then you had your Xbox, and really Xbox kind of kicked off an entire new generation of, of video gaming, uh, and really kind of the, the sky's the limit when it came down to that. So I'm really excited to hear a little bit about what Robbie Bach did to play that part in creating the Xbox, but really overseeing the development of this wildly successful video game uh, from Microsoft. Um, but now, you know, this is a Carolina grad. Um, he, he's, he's done his time at Microsoft, and he's now turning his expertise and creativity to civic issues, and has also published a book called Xbox Revisited, uh, really a game plan for corporate and civic renewal. So we're super excited to dive in uh, to his brand, and welcome to the Brand Builders Podcast, Robbie. Robbie, thank you for hey, joining me. Hey, good to be on. Yes, sir. Yeah, thanks, for, thanks for having me on. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to chat. Awesome. Thank you very much. So you are actually from Winston-Salem, and you are a Moorhead Scholar at UNC Chapel Hill. And while you were there, you were an academic All-American for the uh, Tar Heels varsity tennis team. Man, congratulations. That's awesome. Um, was uh, there... thanks, very, thanks very much. That was a, uh, that was a, that was a, good, uh, a good period in my life. Carolina's, uh, Carolina has a very, very warm spot in, in my heart, for sure. Growing up around here, or the or the Carolinas, did that upbringing tell us about how that molded you into the person you are today? Well, well, I grew up in the Midwest uh, and uh, grew up in mostly in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. We moved to North Carolina when I was uh, just entering eighth grade. And Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and Winston-Salem, North Carolina are not uh, all that much alike. So that was a pretty big culture shock for me. Um, but I grew to love North Carolina. My entire family ultimately ended up moving there. Um, brothers and sisters still live there. Uh, went to school there, met my wife there. My daughter just graduated from UNC Chapel Hill. So Carolina has been, uh, has been a constant in my life. And I, I kind of, uh, grew to like it as sort of a bridge between my past and my future. Uh, Carolina was, um, uh, you know, part of, part of the where I grew up, but it's also, you know, what gave me the opportunity to do the things that I did later in life. And excellent. You, um, after you got your, your degree at, at UNC Chapel Hill, you, you went all the way across the country to get your MBA at Stanford. Tell us about that decision uh, and what brought you to, to try to take your, your next efforts over to, uh, to California and, and go, you know, uh, try to get your degree over there at Stanford. Well, you know, the irony is I, 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 uh, probably would have gone to Stanford undergrad um, and was was uh, planning to go either there or to Northwestern. And then when I got the Moorhead Scholarship, that changed everything. Um, Carolina wasn't, uh, uh, frankly, wasn't on my list of schools. And when I got the Moorhead Scholarship, I said, that's too great an opportunity to pass up. Carolina became my number one choice and and, you know, thankfully I made that choice because it was uh, the best choice I could possibly have made. 
Um, and so when I when I, I went to work for a couple of years after Carolina, I worked in investment banking for a little while. I wanted to go back to business school. Stanford was sort of a natural a natural opportunity because I it'd been a place that I I thought about going uh, as an undergrad. I was already on the West Coast working for a bank in San Francisco, and uh, it just worked out to be the the right place for us. And tell me, so when we jump kind of into this Xbox and, and Microsoft kind of story, tell us how it all started. Um, first off, you know, I grew up in an era where there wasn't the Internet and there is the Internet. And now I'm 34 years old and it seems like, you know, kids wouldn't even be able to fathom that there wouldn't be the Internet or have this, you know, device in their hand that could, could be so powerful. But it was never always like that. And I remember back in the day with Microsoft Office and the first ones that came out on a computer, it was cool just to be able to type and, and see it on a screen. Um, but tell us kind of about the journey of, of taking a job at Microsoft, what it was like, and then really kind of the journey throughout. Well, Microsoft, you know, Microsoft was still a relatively small place when I joined. I joined in 1988, uh, so definitely pre-internet. And... Um, you know, Microsoft was maybe 3,500 people. Uh, I worked, ironically, you just mentioned Microsoft Office. I worked on, on, on Office for a period of time there. I also had the chance to go live overseas with Microsoft in France, uh, for two years. So all of that was sort of a precursor, uh, an opportunity to build my skills, build my talents in marketing and general management. Uh, and then late in the 1990s, this Xbox opportunity, uh, frankly, landed in my lap. It wasn't even something I sought out. And that changed my professional life. It was a, an amazing opportunity to work in an industry that was a, a real industry at that point, but getting ready to go through dramatic change. And uh, certainly the Internet was part of that. But sort of the merging of technology and entertainment was a big part of it as well. You know, video games quickly became sort of half Silicon Valley, half Hollywood. Um, and that was uh, an incredible place to to um, develop my professional skills and to to figure out what uh, what things I was good at. When we had the pleasure of of hearing you speak, you you told a story about how the idea of Xbox was created in a hotel room, and I thought it was fascinating. Tell us a little bit about how that went down. Well, we Microsoft every year had the, what they call the executive staff retreat, which was they took all the vice presidents away to a to a resort uh, called Semiamu up in uh, northern Washington, the state of Washington. And, and at that retreat, we, we basically had the opportunity to propose ideas for breakout sessions. And the, a guy who worked for me named Rick Thompson proposed the subject, should Microsoft do a video game console? Now, this was in 19, spring of 1999. Microsoft didn't do any hardware, essentially, at that time. We made mice and keyboards, and that was about it. So the idea that Microsoft would do something as big and complicated as a video game console was a pretty bold idea. So we broke up into into groups, and a group of five or six of us went into literally into one of the one of the bedrooms at the at the resort. Uh, Bill Gates joined us, and we started batting around Rick's idea of creating a video game console. And as it turned out, there'd been three or four groups inside Microsoft who'd been exploring that idea. Uh, Rick knew about them. We talked about them in that meeting in the hotel at Semiamu, and uh, Bill came away impressed enough with the idea that he went and met with those groups. And over the next three months, he sort of figured out whether there was a good technical plan available for Microsoft to do a video game console. And then the idea came back to Rick and I um, to vet as a business and to build a business plan. And by the end of 1999, uh, the Xbox plan, both product and business plan, had been approved and we were on our way. 
And tell us, you know, there was a very interesting journey for the first Xbox. And I know you talked a lot a bit about culture and and bringing a lot of different people from around the world and, and technically around the United States as well to, to formulate a group. But you had a strong deadline. You needed to make explosions and you needed to make them look really good. And you had to hit this date. Um, and there were a lot of there were a lot of struggles there. And I think there's a lot of people that are listening to this that would love to, to kind of hear how that journey went. Um, and ultimately led to you almost wanting to quit. So tell us about that. You know, I think when, when people think about startups, they, they sort of think about the romantic idea of starting from scratch in the garage with your friends and building something great. And, you know, I, I suppose occasionally that happens. That was not the story of the Xbox startup for sure. Um, we started at the end of 1999 with about 20 people. Um, and we had 18 months to build the world's most complicated video game console. And again, as I said, from a company that had done nothing more complicated than a, a Microsoft mouse or a keyboard. So you can imagine that was, was fairly crazy. And in, in the process, we had to grow from 20 people to 2,000 people over that 18 months. So uh, I will tell you, you know, just straight up, that was the worst 18 months of my professional life. Um, every day was a fight. Every day we were trying to create new things. Every day we were hiring new people and trying to build a team. Uh, it felt like I was coming in each morning with a, you know, a fire extinguisher trying to put out the fires that were burning in the group. And I did that for, you know, 15 months. And, and at the end of that, in that 15 month period in May of, of 2001, I just decided I'd have enough. The, the work was killing me. I was working, I don't know, 18, 19 hours a day. I wasn't seeing my family very much. I had three young kids. Um, it was, uh, toxic. It's destructive. And the work was interesting and fascinating and, and challenging, but it was destroying my personal life. So at, I don't know, two 30 in the morning, I wrote an email to my boss and resigned from Microsoft. Um, and you know, part of that was out of frustration, but part of it was, uh, was really a call for help. Um, the team was really struggling. Uh, we were getting things done, but just barely. Um, it was, a very strong technical team, some of the smartest people I've ever worked with, but completely dysfunctional. And, you know, if I'm, if I'm honest with myself, that was my job. I was the leader of the group and I was allowing it to be dysfunctional and it was destroying my personal life and it was destroying uh, the team. So that was, that was certainly a low point. And I think it's, it's easy for people when they think about startups to, to, to romanticize it a bit. It's really difficult, hard work. And, and we were a strange startup because we had a lot of resources. Um, but in some ways, that made it even harder because it made making choices difficult because we had so many resources that we could, you know, uh, do things in a, in a haphazard way. Um, ultimately, my boss convinced me to stay. Somehow, that first version of Xbox managed to ship. Um, that is one of the miracles that I still can't completely describe to you. Um, but on November 15th, uh, 2001, we were in New York City um, launching the Xbox in Times Square at the brand new Toys R Us with Bill Gates. And, um, you know, I, I, I then went and we, we talked about this a little bit when I presented in Charlotte. I, I, I then went and tried to figure out my personal life, my professional life and sort that out. That's a sort of a second story. Um, but that, that period for Xbox was unbelievably turbulent, unbelievably challenging. And we were very fortunate that it all kind of came together. And you mentioned, um, at the speaking engagement, how much money this Xbox lost. (laughs) 
And I think you asked the crowd, uh, if you lost, and I'm just going to guess here, $8 billion, how many of you would still be employed? And I think every single person in that room was just jaw to the floor. Um, uh, we wouldn't be employed. Uh, that, w- that would be the answer. But you were. And so tell me that story about how you decided to shift the culture and, and you really took it upon yourself to be that leader and bring the challenges to the corporate leadership team and, and to the executives, including Bill Gates, and say, look, if we this is a, a powerful platform. We can make money doing this, but we need to do it a different way. And we need to kind of reevaluate how we're delivering this uh, this new technology. So tell us a little bit about how you took the first Xbox from from really, you know, I don't want to call it a failure because it wasn't, but at the same time, it wasn't making money. And then you turned that into a moneymaker through, you know, Xbox One and Xbox 360. Would love to hear that journey. Yeah, so uh, the the original version of Xbox was sort of a mixed blessing. You know, as you you know, we did pretty well in the marketplace, let's say 20, 25% market share. Kind of co-equals, maybe a little bit better than Nintendo's GameCube and in most markets and less than, than Nintendo in Japan. So you'd say it was a, a market success, but as you point out, depending on how you do the accounting, we lost in four years somewhere between 5 and $7 billion. So I, I can't call that a success. And the team, uh, right after we launched, stepped back and said, you know, why are we so dysfunctional? Why is this not working? And we had an offsite, again, in another hotel called the Salish Lodge. And we spent two days arguing about how to plan for the next version of the product. And we developed this uh, process that I now call the 3P framework. And we basically, um, I wrote and then the team helped edit a three-page document that set out the strategy for the next version of the product. And it had what, the, these three Ps, purpose, principles, and priorities. And it's that three-page document that we used to really reset the team and to get the team both focused on finishing what was the original Xbox and continuing to sell that product, but more importantly, developing Xbox 360. And uh, you know that having that focus, those three pages that sort of toward people, this is what we're trying to accomplish. This is how we're going to do it. These are the five things we're going to focus on. Did consciously change the culture of the team. And we went from being a very talented, dysfunctional team to being a very talented Xbox team. And uh, we kind of grew up during that period. Xbox 360 had its own set of challenges, as all products do. But um, the the two or three years we worked on that product was just as tough from a from a time perspective at work, but incredibly enjoyable. And I learned a lot. And the team came together to produce, you know, what was arguably the, you know, a really great product. How much of the gaming industry now? Uh, how much of the market share do you all have at Microsoft in the gaming industry now? You know, I don't know. I've been I've been gone now for gosh, it's almost nine years. Um, but and and I think it depends on what you count in the hardware space. I think PlayStation Four probably still outsells uh, Xbox One. My guess, this is just a guess, probably 40% to 30%, something like that. Um, but I think hardware share has become less and less meaningful. The industry has moved so much to being an online platform and uh, to being about the games themselves and you know, esports and mobile gaming and a whole bunch of other things. The industry has just exploded since Xbox 360's time frame. And you know, now... You know, Microsoft, I, I know, looks at it as a 
market share battle on the software side. They look at it as a market share battle on the online service side, where Xbox Live does incredibly well. Um, and so I think the, their business is, is is super successful right now in a market that has just grown uh, substantially. Are you still on the board? Or are you still advising the team there? Or are you completely separated at this point? No, I'm complete. I'm completely separated. You know, I, I reached a point in uh, oh, I don't know, 2009, early 2010, where we had really completed Xbox 360. We'd shipped a accessory to Xbox 360 called Connect, um, which you know really extended the life of that product for another two or three years. Uh, I I I felt like I had done what I needed to do at, at the company, and it was time for me to do some other things. And I was switching gears to wanting to do more work in in the civic world. And you know, Microsoft's a demanding place. It's a great company, but it was a demanding place. There was no way for me to do what I wanted to do in the civic world while while still working full time. So I. I left in November of 2010, um, and you know I still have tons of friends at the company. I still uh, cheer them on from the sidelines, but I'm not involved in any any formal way in the strategy or the work that they're doing. And you, um, you had mentioned in in the uh, speaking engagement some really great advice, and and you have kids, and I have a, a young child now, and and luckily he's not playing video games, but he wants to grab my phone and the iPad and everything else. Um, what is your <laughs> advice? around technology now and really, you know, getting kids outside and getting kids not so obsessed with gaming um, that they can still do interactions and they still want to go play sports and they still want to go learn how to play music and they still want to do things that I feel are very important. But I feel like kind of technology is taking over where the point where you can put on a virtual reality set and it's like you're, you're Tom Brady playing, you know, quarterback for the for the Patriots. It's incredible. I mean, it is incredible what what people have been able to develop. So it would be very interesting to hear your advice to to parents and and how they can kind of um, keep it even keel, you know, because you're never going to be able to completely keep kids away from technology, which I don't think you should. I definitely think they need to be exposed to it. But it also needs to be everything needs to be in, in moderation. Well, yeah, my my perspective on, on technology, whether it's video games or social media or whatever it is, is that the te- technology itself generally is not good or bad. The technology just is. And the, the and, and, and by the way, the idea that you're going to slow the technology down is, is probably misguided. Instead, what you have to do is you have to say, okay, look, this can be for good or for bad. We have to inform our kids. We have to educate our kids. We have to guide our kids. Um, so our rule around our house when our kids were growing up was, um, you know, ironically, there was no video games during the week. <laughs> was the way it was. Kids had homework during the week and homework needed to get done. Our kids were all very involved in sports. So they were busy playing things and doing things with friends and, and, uh, and, and getting their schoolwork done. And on the weekends when schoolwork was done, they had, they had some time and we'd allow them to play. And my son was certainly a big video gamer and, and still is. But it's it's really about moderation. It's really about management. It's really about teaching your kids to to make choices, and that's a parent's job. And you know, when I when I think about social media today, when I think about tablets and phones and things like that, I don't think tablets and phones and social media are bad per se. But I think kids need to be really educated. Parents need to pay attention and be engaged. Um, and it's too easy to sort of throw your hands up and say I can't keep track or I don't understand it. Um, your kids do understand it. So you have to be engaged and you have to have to be involved. I love that answer. What um, I, I would assume there's certain games that you guys have, have helped create or, or were a part of that did better than others. But 
what is the the top grossing game that Microsoft's ever done? I'm assuming Halo might be up there. And then what was your favorite game uh, that was ever produced? Well, it's certainly, I mean, Halo is the only reason Xbox exists today. So you'd have to say, and, and I'm sure financially, um, it's the most successful game. Microsoft itself has other done. Xbox, the platform, has had other games that have probably done as much, maybe even a little bit more. Call of Duty probably has done as much volume on Xbox as Halo has. Um, but Call of Duty is an, Act, an Activision product um, that was published on, on Xbox. So Microsoft's own games, Halo, would far and away be in the lead. And, you know, without Halo, nobody would have bought Xbox. Um I mean, it's, it's pretty simple. And we were fortunate enough to, to buy a company called Bungie um, during the development process of Xbox and take a game that was going to be on the Macintosh and it was going to be on the PC and put it on, on Xbox. And it was wildly successful. And that franchise today is still wildly successful. So um, the short answer to your question is Halo. In terms of games, you know, so here's the, here's the, the sad but uh, truth, true story. I don't play video games. Um, I'm not a video game player. I'm terrible at it. The team would never let me demo the product. Um, <laughs> that's just uh, that's just not what I do. I loved the video game business, and I'm a business guy. In case that's not clear, and and so I loved the intricacies of the business model, the partnership model, the marketing, the brand building, those types of things. And I I, I wasn't good at judging what made a good game. I you know I probably know more than the average bear, I suppose, just because you, you learn by osmosis. But it's not my it's not my great skill, um, and and so I, I you know saying I, if you ask me what my favorite game was it would absolutely be Halo because it saves the business. <laughs> Good answer. That's awesome, man. Well, so you you retired I think in 2010. You mentioned nine years ago, um, and you started right. setting your mind towards civic problems. And I would assume that some of the principles that help you break ground at Microsoft have now trickled back into communities in your effort to help find solutions to their problems. Um, shifting gears a little bit, could you tell us a little bit about what you're involved in now and, and how you're helping communities? Yeah, so when I when I left Microsoft, I took about, I don't know, three or four months, sort of experimented with a few things, did a little consulting work, did a little bit of writing, a little bit of speaking, kind of figured out what I wanted to do. And I ended up focusing on what I call civic engineering which is the idea that we should all be involved in our local communities um, and even in our regional and national communities and trying to help communities get stronger. And you're right, I did take a bunch of things I learned on Xbox. Um, and the book you mentioned at the very beginning, Xbox Revisited a Game Plan for Corporate Civic Renewal, is the Xbox story, but it's the Xbox story written to develop a set of principles and approaches for solving civic problems. Um, and so my work today involves a couple of different things. I'm still doing a bunch of writing, uh, both uh, blogging on LinkedIn as well as um, writing a second book. I do a lot of public speaking. I'll do probably this year between 40 and 50 speeches, mostly pro bono speeches at schools, but occasionally a, a paid speech for a corporation or for an organization. Um, and then I work with uh, five or six nonprofits. I'm on five nonprofit boards. And that's mostly, uh, essentially, that becomes consulting assignments. Um, and it's really designed around helping them think through strategy, helping them think through scale, and how they take what, you know, hopefully is a good idea and have it impact more and more communities. Um, my three biggest 
um, pieces of nonprofit work. Uh, by far, my biggest is Boys and Girls Clubs of America. I've been on the Boys and Girls Clubs of America national board now for, I don't know, 12 or 13 years. I've been on local board in Bellevue, Washington for almost 20. Um, it is an amazing organization, reaches about four and a half million kids every year. Um, it's big, it's complicated, um, but it is, it is a fabulous organization. So I spent a lot of time there. Um, I'm also on the, the board of directors for the U.S. Olympic Committee. Sports is a deep passion for me. Um, and so I spend a, a, a good chunk of my time working with the Olympic movement. And then finally, um, I'm on the board of uh, an organization called the Bipartisan Policy Center, which is a think tank in Washington, D.C. And they do work to try to uh, bring people from various points of views together to reach constructive viewpoints on big policy issues. Um, and then there's a, a couple of local boards that I do some work with. So it's a, a variety of work. Um, it's all things focused on civics and making communities stronger and better. And it's places where I can take my personal passion and, and uh, passions and really dive in and try to help. It sounds like you're just as busy, if not busier, in your retirement than you were at Microsoft with your 18, 19-hour days. Well, <laughs> well, it's funny. It's funny. I, when, I never I never used the retirement word to describe my life. I, I always tell people I decided it was time to do something different. Um, and I left Microsoft not because I didn't love Microsoft, but because I felt like I was done um, learning and contributing in that environment. And now I'm trying to learn and contribute in another environment. And, you know, if I was a 110% busy at Microsoft, I'm probably 90% busy now. Um, the big difference is that I can schedule my own time at Microsoft. My time was somebody else's time. And, uh, you know, I always, you know, I could try to plan as much as I wanted to, but the business dictated what I had to do. I have a little bit more flexibility now. And I try to use that flexibility for, um, engagement with as many things as I possibly can. That's awesome, man. And you're also on the board of Sonos, which is one of my favorite products in the world, and Brooks. Uh, and, and you're also a restaurant owner of Manini's. Is that how you spell it or pronounce yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, it is. There's, there's a couple of different things going on. Uh, Sonos, Sonos is the, the one for-profit board that I've, I've maintained. I joined Sonos in 2011. Love that company, love the products, fabulously interesting business. Um, really good group of people and they're, they're doing, they're doing great work. And I'm, I'm a, uh, I love music. I have very, uh, pop culture, uh, 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 preferences. So I'm, I'm going to sound kind of uh, old when you think about the music I like to listen to, but I love music and, and Sonos is absolutely a music company. Um, Brooks and a couple other companies are companies I've advised along the way. Um, and I'm a, I'm a Brooks running shoe fan as well. So there it's a, that's another, another great company. And I, so I've, I've done a little bit of for-profit work in addition to the, to the nonprofit work you, uh, we talked about. So you, um, it's, it seems like a lot of the boards that you're on, it's things that you're passionate about, but they're also a lot different, uh, in a lot of different ways. And one thing I'd like to ask you is, is getting involved in boys and girls club and the United States Olympic committee and Sonos and all these other boards and year up, which you talked about, which is, is making a presence here in Charlotte, which is a really cool group. My question is more kind of, uh, an overall viewpoint of, of our country and where we are and really what you think some of those challenges may be. Uh, you mentioned what you do specifically with the Bipartisan Policy Center and bringing people together to create communication. And that's really the driver of, of this podcast. We feel specifically locally in Charlotte, if we can start that conversation with people that are different than us, 
then everybody realizes that we're not as as far apart as maybe some social media post or some news outlets might um, might report. So I just want to understand your your mindset on where we are as a country. What are some of the challenges that you think we need to overcome? And really, how does that start? Is it just having a communication? Is it getting back involved in your community with you kind of leading that that charge uh, and having that powerful brand and having a platform to create that message? I'd love to hear what your advice would be for people um, throughout the country and how we can c- continue to be better and continue to raise or, or create a country that we can all be proud of. Yeah, I, it's it's a great point. I think the country is in uh, uh, in a difficult position right now, and you know it's important to remember this isn't new. Um, the country uh, goes through waves of um, what we'll call uh, more normal relationships and then challenging relationships and times of change. Um, either whether that's cultural change or generational change or technology change are really, really difficult. And right now the country's going through a big period of change. You know, I'm just barely old enough to remember the sixties and most people, you know, don't think, you know, have sort of forgotten that era, but that was a very turbulent time in our country. I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I remember there being a curfew in Milwaukee, um, because there was riots in the, in the city. Um, so th- this isn't the first time this has happened to the country. It won't be the last time it's happened to the country. And, and the thing that always brings us together is two things. One, um, really strong leadership, people who are willing to step up and, and take a point of view and be rational about things and provide direction, uh, thoughtful direction for the country. Um, and two, the ability for people uh, to sit down and and actually have really hard, difficult, constructive arguments about issues. You know, part of the challenge when when people say, "Well, we're so fractured and divided," uh, that's true. But part of the problem is we're fractured and divided because we won't sit down and have real conversations and try to sort through the the issues. You know, the, things like immigration and healthcare and other things are divisive issues in one way, but truthfully, when you actually analyze it, they're issues that have solutions. And there are issues that where rational people can can hammer out real constructive uh, solutions. And that's what the Bipartisan Policy Center does. It gets people from both sides of the aisle. And it's not like it's a nice conversation. They get people in the room and they argue about it. They bring policy people in, analysts, people who have studied the science of the problem. And they let people argue about it and, and figure out constructive solutions. And, and my, you know, my advice and thought, if I get a you know, minute on a soapbox, is to tell people, Hey, things in D.C. are challenging. That's hard. Uh, hopefully that will get better. Hopefully some re- leaders will rise. But the fact is you can fix most of these problems in your local community. And the community leaders need to stand up. And whatever's going on in Washington or on the national stage will go on, and hopefully that will get better. But we can make things better locally. And whether that's in Charlotte or where I live in, in the Seattle-Bellevue area or wherever it is you are, you know, are you engaged on the issues that are affecting your community? Are you involved in trying to talk with people who have differing points of view? And are you trying to hammer out a, a path forward? Uh, it's hard work. It's no fun. Um, it's easier to go talk with people who think like you do. Um, but that doesn't lead to constructive solutions. That just leads to more fragmentation. And so we, you know, we locally people have to dig in. Um, and the truth is, if you think about through the country's history, most solutions to our problems have come locally and have spread nationally. And I I think that's a a really important way for us to attack some of these problems. 
I love that answer. We, we've had some uh, politicians on our podcast. We've had local leaders. And and, and we always talk about that. It, it seems like everybody wants to jump to this big national scale and they're all, you know, freaking out over, over certain issues when in reality, the issue is right in your backyard. And how can you help your neighborhood? How can you help your specific community? And if everybody did that and looked in the mirror and said, what can I do today to be great? And what can I do today to support somebody that maybe isn't like me? And what can I do today to create a conversation then our whole entire country will continue to get better. And so I, I really appreciate you um, giving your input on that. That was fantastic. Um, now, as we kind of change, change gears here, you did write a book. And um, I do want to know a little bit more about, about your book. Um, and we'll definitely uh, put some links up so people can go on the website and buy that book. But tell us a little bit about what Xbox Revisited is all about. <laughs> so Xbox Revisited started as an, an effort in frustration. When I when I left Microsoft and I started I actually started paying attention to what was going on in the country again and it, I was frustrated. It, it didn't make sense to me. I didn't understand why um, we couldn't reach resolution on some of these problems. So I sat down and tried to write, you know, I talked earlier about the three-page strategy document for Xbox 360. Well, I tried to write a three-page strategy document for the country. Um, and that turned into about a 12 page thesis, uh, which I thought was exceptionally well written and very thoughtful, but almost completely useless because it's <laughs> too long for anybody to read and not long enough to be anything useful. Um, so, uh, that was the impetus for me to say, Hey, I need to write a book about this. And I decided to write the book about the Xbox story and about what we learned from Xbox and what we learned about strategy development and people management and culture and what that could mean for the country. And so the book basically traces the Xbox story, not from a sort of tell-all story, but um, it tells the story of Xbox and what things happened and what we learned from them and then takes those lessons and tries to apply them to civic situations. And in the book, you know, the three-page document that I mentioned on Xbox is in the book. A lot of the stories about that early, the early days of Xbox are in the book. Um, there's some personal stories in there, but there's also an effort to write a three-page document for the country. And not really to prove whether I'm right or wrong on the three-page document, but just to point out that, you know, we can be thoughtful about big, complicated issues. And if we sit down and, and try to reduce things to the basic elements, we can, we can find common ground. And so that's the, that's the point of the book. It's a jumping off point for many of the things I do in my, my speeches. Um, it's ironically sort of the basis for my second book, which I'm just, uh, um, I was actually doing some editing work on it this morning, uh, which is fiction. So non, uh, switching from nonfiction to fiction, but it's sort of grounded in the same, uh, philosophy of how do we take a country, a conflict, and turn it into a country that's productive uh, for more people. When is that book going to be coming out? Well, that's a good question. Uh, <laughs> I would hope I would hope I could finish everything and get it deep into the publishing process by this fall, but that's always uh, a tricky thing. Look, if there's an industry that doesn't move really quickly, it's the publishing, uh, it's the publishing industry. So I need to... Uh, I, I've I've done some really uh, extensive work on the writing. There's some editing work that I'm doing with a with a with a with an editor, and then we'll uh, dig into the publishing process. But hopefully, sometime you know early next year. So I just have to ask this question: What is more difficult to write a nonfiction or fiction? Oh, fiction's way harder. 
fiction's way hard, not even close. If I had decided to write a second nonfiction book, I would have been done, oh, I don't know, two years ago. Wow. Uh, <laughs> well, that's fascinating. Um, I think it, I think it's going to be amazing to, to read the first book and then read this book and see the differences, but also just kind of see where your imagination can go. And I think that'll be really appealing to a lot of people uh, that will be looking forward to, uh, to this book release. Yeah, it's uh, fiction is um, more interesting because you're engaged in a story, but it makes the author's job more challenging because you have to tell a story that's compelling, that's interesting, that's uh, sort of engaging in its own right. You have to have characters, you have to describe characters, you have to have um, dialogue, which you know actually writing authentic dialogue turns out to be pretty difficult. Um, and then you, if you're if you really are trying to deliver a message, you have to make sure the message comes through in the story. And so blending what is a, you know, essentially a nonfiction message, a serious message with a story that is engaging and exciting, uh, that has been uh, and continues to be uh, the big challenge for me. I love it. So we, um, as we start to wrap this up, man, I, I, I do really appreciate you, you know, coming on our podcast. I think it's been fascinating to dive into your background, your story, uh, what you've learned and really how you're taking all those lessons and doing good for not only our, uh, our country, but, but the community as a whole. And, and so I can applaud you on that. Uh, I, I can't wait to read, um, these books and really just follow your journey. But before we let you go, what's the best way for people to get in touch with you if they do want to bring you on for a speaking engagement? Uh, is there any, uh, any, any links, any things that you want to uh, plug right now? Yeah, so uh, a couple of things. I mean, people can obviously follow me on LinkedIn. I'm Robbie Bach on LinkedIn. Not hard to find. I have a website, uh, RobbieBach.com, so R-O-B-D-I-E-B-A-C-H.com. Um, I, uh, when my speeches are videotaped, I post them, post them there. All my blogs are there. I have a lot of information on the, on the Xbox Revisited book and you can buy it there. Um, and all, anything I get from, from the book, any money I get from the book for my speaking ends up going to charity. So it's, uh, it's an effort. It's part of my, my civic engagement. So that's the best way to, to get in touch with me and the information's uh, all on that website and certainly follow me on LinkedIn. It's a good way to track some of the things I'm writing. I just posted a blog this week on, um, on how to think about leadership in, in, in growing companies and ask yourself the question, whether you're an explorer, a pioneer or a settler. Um, so you know, people want to check that out or some of the other things I've written, uh, LinkedIn's a place to go. Wow. Well, you're fascinating is an understatement when it comes to your story, Robbie, and we are absolutely honored to have you on today. Thank you so much for taking a few minutes to hang out with us and share all of this fascinating material. And uh, we're very thankful. Hey, I, I really enjoyed it, guys. Appreciate you having me on and uh, best of luck to, in all the things that you're doing. Absolutely. Thank you, Robbie. We appreciate it. And you heard him, uh, RobbieBach.com. That's R-O-B-B-I-E-B-A-C-H.com. You can find all of his information. If you have any questions, you can reach out to us as well. Uh, thank you again for coming on the Brand Builders Podcast. We're so excited uh, to share your story, and uh, we hope you have a fantastic day. Uh, you too. Take care, guys. Thank you, Robbie. You've been listening to the Brand Builders Podcast, brought to you by the Dunstan Group with your host, Scott Dunstan and Brian Young. For branded merchandise and apparel that makes first impressions and ones that last, check out the Dunstan Group at dunstangroup.com.